Well, we are continuing our our time with the the Jesse tree. The Jesse tree is kind of an Advent uh, devotion uh, leading up to Christmas. And as a church, I've encouraged you to um, to take time as a family to focus on each one of these passages of Scripture. And uh, and the Jesse tree devotions is more than just what takes place in. Bethlehem on Christmas morning. God has a much bigger story that he has been doing throughout history. Uh, we see that uh, that Christmas didn't come 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem. Uh, Christmas came before the foundations of the earth. Bible says that before creation, God had already slain his son. He was the lamb of God before the foundations of the world. And so uh, the Christmas story and, and uh, the Jesse tree advent is just looking at the big story, uh, his story. History pointing to his son, Jesus Christ. And uh, last week, just to review, we, we saw that uh, God does his greatest work when things look the bleakest. And we looked at Abraham and Sarah last, last Sunday. God waited until it was physically impossible in the eyes of man to have the son of promise. God waited until Abraham was 99 and Sarah was 90 to conceive. Why did God wait so long? Well, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 4. Paul tells us that uh, that was... That was a picture, that was a testimony of what salvation is all about. Salvation doesn't come through the work of man. Salvation is the work of God. And we as his people just need to believe his promises. And we're going to look more at that this morning. But, um, and so, but yet God does his greatest work when things look like you're at a dead end. And there's nothing else that can happen. God is still working. Not only do we see that, but to, we saw the idea of the Christmas story is um, when God promised to Adam and Eve after they had failed God, God told, God told Eve that from the seed of woman is going to come one that's going to crush the head of the serpent. You know how long it took for God to fulfill that promise? If you're a young earth person this morning in our service, it took 4,000 plus years for God to fulfill that promise. The message of Advent is that God wants us to wait on him, no matter how long it takes. 
you know, we may think as if God is stalled, but God is, God may appear slow at times, church, but God is surely moving. And, and God's timing is always perfect. And so as we go through the Jesse tree and we, as we're looking at all these stories, Paul understood that from the Old Testament, this is the gospel of God. The gospel doesn't start in the New Testament. The gospel started in the beginning. Look at Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God which he promised beforehand through the prophets. And so far we've been looking at the words of Moses in the Old Testament in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was descended from God according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so Advent is the appreciation of the unfolding of God's plan, the unfolding of God's rescue plan for mankind. And so that took us to day seven. Day seven was uh, the story in uh, Genesis chapter 22, where God told Abraham to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. And so Abraham, even though it didn't make sense, he didn't understand, Abraham obeyed. The Bible says he went to Mount Moriah to sacrifice Isaac. Mount Moriah is where the temple of God was built in Jerusalem. But as God was told Abraham to do this, this was a shadow. This was a picture of how God was going to redeem his people. It was a picture of what God was going to do with his only son, Jesus Christ. And we saw in Genesis 22 where where God spared Isaac. God prevented Abraham from slaying, from sacrificing his son, Isaac. But God didn't spare Isaac his own son, Jesus Christ, from dying on the cross for our redemption. And we know from Scripture that this sacrifice is the way that God will make peace with man, if man will only believe. And so the message of Advent from the Old Testament and the life of Abraham and Isaac is redemption is coming. Redemption is coming. And then in day eight, we looked at Genesis chapter 28, and we read about the dream that Jacob had in the desert. A peculiar dream. Jacob dreamed of a ladder, and uh, angels were descending and ascending on this ladder. What's that all about? 
And then we read in the New Testament in John chapter 1, verse 51, that Jesus, the Lord, is at the top of the ladder. Again, it's not a, a huge explanation of Jacob's dream, but, uh, but what is God conveying in, this, in these two passages of Scripture? That Jesus is the link between heaven and earth. After Jacob had experienced that dream in Genesis chapter 20, 28, he named the location where he had had that dream uh, Bethel or Bethel, which means house of God. And when we come to Jesus... When we see that Jesus is our only answer, guess what? Jesus is that link, and Jesus becomes our house of God. You know, for us as Christians, we don't have any holy sites in our religion. Jesus is our house of God. This Jesus is where we meet with God. You don't have to go to Jerusalem. You don't have to go to the wall of the, of the temple in Jerusalem to get close to God. No, God is right here among us in the person of Jesus Christ. Emmanuel. God with us. And so this is, this, Jacob's ladder this is a ladder. This is not the letter H or whatever. And my grandson, uh, Preston, made this. So you can compliment him when you see him. But this represents the dream Jacob had. And then we come to day nine. Day nine is the life of Joseph. Joseph's ordeal. Man, was it a, a roller coaster ride for Joseph. Uh, Joseph was the favorite son of Jacob. Now he wasn't the he wasn't uh, the son through whom the seed of promise was going to come. That was another son. Jacob was or Joseph was one of twelve children, twelve twelve boys. The promised seed was going to come through Judah, um, but Jacob was um, or Joseph was Jacob's favorite son. And why was he his favorite son? Because uh, he was born of Rachel. You remember the story of Rachel. Uh, when Jacob left his household, he went to, to, to another place and he uh, met Laban, um, <clears throat> the father of this girl that had captured his eye. Um, her name was Rachel. And Laban said, if you want Rachel as your wife... You've got to work for me for seven years. And so Joseph realized, well, this girl is worth it. I'm going to work for you for seven years. And he worked for seven years. On, and on his wedding day, on his wedding night, wedding night, Laban pulled a fast one. Instead of giving uh, Joseph Rachel, he gave her Leah. Now, Leah was the older sister. Leah was the homely one that nobody wanted to marry. And so Laban snuck Leah in. And the next morning, uh, 
Joseph realized what Laban had done, and Laban said, hey, uh, deceiver, you know, the tables are tor- turned now. If you really want Rachel as your wife, you're going to have to work for me another seven years. And so he worked another seven years. But the but Rachel was the the apple of his eye. Rachel was barren for most of their married life. But God opened Rachel's womb at the end, and she had two children. One was one was um, well, I forget their names right now. But uh, what's that? Jo- Joseph and Benjamin. And uh, when she had ben- Benjamin, she died. Of course it was Joseph. And so, and so Joseph was Jacob's favorite. And we know the story of Joseph. God made a coat of many colors. And this infuriated his brothers because they knew that Joseph was the favorite. God had given Joseph uh, a few dreams that he shared with his brothers. And his brothers uh, were rather offended by those dreams. And uh, they didn't want to have anything to do with Joseph anymore. And so, so they sold him off into slavery, into Egypt. And uh, again, Joseph's life was a, a roller coaster ride. But here we see from Joseph's life that this was a shadow of what was going to happen to God's son, Jesus Christ. Joseph was falsely accused. He was punished for those accusations. And yet in the end, he was exalted to the second highest uh, place in Egypt. When we look at the life of Jesus and what happened in the New Testament at his crucifixion, what what the Jews and the Romans were doing to Jesus, they were having a field day. And it appeared as if God was losing, that things were just falling apart at the scenes. All hell was breaking loose. But we know from that situation that God was doing his finest work. What looked darkest and bleakest to the world was was magnificent, was glorious for us as believers in Christ. The forgiveness of our sin through his shed blood. So what do we learn from the Advent story in Joseph's life? We learn that God trumps all evil. And that is not a political endorsement this morning. All right? God trumps all evil. What appears to be falling apart at the seams. Again, God is doing his greatest work. Look at, look at Acts chapter 2 verses 22 and 23. This is, uh, Peter's Peter's sermon after after the 
after everyone has been uh, filled with the Holy Spirit. And Peter is is preaching here. And he says this in verse uh, 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God within mighty with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, but God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. God had this all planned out before the creation of the world. We go back to Joseph's life and no, we don't understand all that's happening in Joseph's life. But it is a picture of what God is going to do in the future. And God is saving his people. Preparing an opportunity back in Genesis 28 for Israel to come to, to Egypt for 430 years according to the plan of God. Christian, we need to see this. We need to see the unfolding of God's plan. We need to appreciate the sovereignty of God over all things. And God trumps all evil. And then we come to Exodus chapter 20. And uh, it's God giving his, uh, his new nation, his brand new nation, the Ten Commandments. What are the Ten Commandments all about? You know, for Jews, they they perceived or they understood that was by keeping the Ten Commandments that this was going to be their ticket to heaven. And so they worked really hard at their righteousness and maintaining all the commands, the commands that God gave and all their man-made rules. But in God's gospel, in the Old Testament, even in the Old Testament, salvation is not by works. Salvation is by faith alone. And before God gave the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, he reminded Israel of how he had saved them out of Egypt. In Exodus chapter 19, Exodus chapter 19 is a picture of the gospel. It's the the good news of the Old Testament. It wasn't their works that saved them. No, it was their faith in God's promise. God promised if you'll put the blood of the lamb over the doorpost, I will spare you and your household. I will save you. And as they did that, God rescued Israel, brought them out of Egypt, brought them out of slavery, the bondage of sin. It was faith 
and what God told them to do that saved them. And this is what we see from the Old Testament. It's not the law. So what's the purpose of the law? The purpose of the law is to point out our sin, to show us how far short we fall from a holy God. It's the law that helps us know God's nature and God's character and God's standard for our life. And God knew. God knows that we couldn't live up to that standard. And upon giving the nation of Israel the Ten Commandments, God then told Moses how to build the tabernacle, how to build the altar and the sacrifices that were going to be required for man's sinfulness. And based on on man's understanding of sin, man is supposed to run to the altar, run to the sacrifice, trust the, the, the blood of the lamb that will cover their sin. Again, a shadow of what God is going to do. That's the purpose of the law. The law was not a ticket to one salvation. It's believing the promises of God. Again, this is the gospel of God that God would have us to tr- trust. This is the message of Advent. And then we come to day 11. Day 11 and day 12. Uh, we're getting our first glimpse of how God is going to bless not only the Jews, but all the families of all the earth. And we come to Rahab. We know the story of Rahab. Uh, God had, uh, Israel had sent 12 spies into, uh, the promise, or spy, not 12, that's another story, but spent, sent spies into the promised land, going to the city of Jericho, because this was going to be the Jews' first conquest. And, uh, well-fortified walls in Jericho. But God had a very unique plan. And again, Israel had to believe the promises of God, even as bizarre as it sounded. March around a city, you know, on seven consecutive days and and blow a trumpet and believe that these walls are going to come down. But they believed God's promises. They obeyed God's, God's command. But before that took place, there was a prostitute uh, who made her home on the wall. Her name was Rahab. Rahab, a Gentile. But Rahab took in the spies and protected them from being killed. And because she had protected them, they said that God was going to spare her and her family's life. And that's what happened. She believed the God of Israel. And God spared Rahab. Rahab Rahab represents the individual who feels furthest from God. 
She was a prostitute. In the world's eyes, you can't get much further from God than being a prostitute. But God loved Rahab. Rahab believed God, and God called her his own. What did God do in Rahab's life? Rahab met a a man, a Jew named Solomon. And they had a son named named Obed. And Obed uh, had a son named um, Boaz. And Boaz had a son named Jesse. And Jesse had a son named David who was going to be the king of Israel. You know, do you know who Rahab turned out to be? She, be, she turned out to be the great, great grandmother of King David. What a legacy. But God took the life of a prostitute and redeemed her. And used her and put her in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. You know, have you ever gone back and looked at your family tree? We probably have some really good stories to share about our family tree. Well, guess what? Jesus has some great stories too. Great stories of God's grace. And Rahab is part of of that genealogy. Not only is Rahab a part of that genealogy, put her up here, the scarlet thread represents Rahab, but we also see another um, Gentile by the name of Ruth. Uh, We know the story of Ruth. Oh, and speaking of Ruth, um, Adam and Ruth Bunton. (laughs) How do you like that for an intro? Uh, next week might be their last week to be with us. And they're going to be going back to St. Louis. And uh, they don't know if they're going back for a year or if they're going back for a lifetime. But uh, they're trusting God that God's going to show them the way. But next week is going to be their last week. And uh, they want to be able to say goodbye to you guys next week. If you're not here next week, you can say goodbye to them today. But uh, we're God's been sending away some really good people in our church. Amen? So, uh, but we're trusting that God's going to uh, uh, send us some others to replace them. I hope you've been working on that, Adam. Okay. But the Ruth of the Bible. She was um, she was the daughter-in-law of uh, Naomi. Naomi was a, a Jew. She had followed her husband to to uh, to Moab. Because uh, there was food there, there was a there was a drought in in Israel at the time. Now Moab, Moab, that was the enemy of Israel. But she went with her husband. She went with her two sons who who married. And while living there, her husband died, and her two sons died. And so so she believes that she needs to go back to to Israel. Go back to. Bethlehem. One of the daughter-in-laws goes goes home, goes to her homeland. But for Ruth, she believed in Naomi's God. And she wanted to stick by her mother-in-law. And she was faithful to her, 
to her to her mother-in-law. She they come back, and uh, Naomi is a bitter woman. She tells Naomi of Ruth to go and work the field, and uh, there is a uh, a a family member um, overseeing the field. His name is is Boaz. And Boaz falls in love with Ruth. And they get married. And so here is this Moabite woman, Ruth, whom God saves, whom God calls his own. And Ruth and Boaz have a son named Jesse um, and who then have another son named David, I, I think I'm missing someone there. I just shared the uh, family line about uh, about um, Rahab, but uh, but what we see in that passage of scripture in Matthew chapter one verse fifty one is that Ruth becomes the great grandmother of King David. So here we see in Jesus' family line that God's blessing, God's salvation isn't just for the people of Israel. It is for the families of all the earth. And so that brings us, so that's the message of Advent. Advent, the message of Advent is this, redemption is available to all. Not just a particular group, not just the good people, but anybody that understands that they are sinners separated from God and the only way that they can be restored, the only way that broken pieces can be put back together again is that they believe the promises of God. This is the Christmas story. This is the message of Advent. This is what's unfolding before us in the Old Testament. And that brings us to day 13 today in the anointing of David. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 53. I'm sorry, not Isaiah. We're going to look at 1 Samuel 16. And we're going to look at verses 6 through uh, 13 very quickly. Beginning with verse 6. And when they came, he looked up. And this is, this is uh, Samuel, the, the, the prophet Samuel. The Bible says that Saul has um, uh, disqualified himself. God says, I'm going to anoint a new king. Samuel goes to the house of Jesse. And in verse 6, we see the sons of Jesse coming before Samuel. When they, when they came, he looked on Eliab. Eliab was the oldest. And Samuel said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him, for the Lord sees not as man sees. 
Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And then we see the other six sons come before Samuel, and none of these are the the individual that God wants anoint. Verse 10, And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for he will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in, and he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of the oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, upon David, from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. What are we going to learn this morning? Advent is appreciating that our ways are not God's ways. Church, we can't put God in a box and think that this is the way that God is going to behave. Our ways are not his ways. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 2. And in knowing that our ways are not his ways, look at the Christmas story. You know, who who would have created the Christmas story that God wrote? Not even Hollywood could have thought of such a story. You know, if I were read, writing the Christmas story, I would have I would have had my son, the redeemer of the world, come into a family of influence, come into a family of power, be born into a a, a very important place of influence, New York City or or Paris or or London. Mary and Joseph as the parents, if I were writing the Christmas story, my son would be uh, uh, William and Kate's son. The prince and the princess. But my ways are not God's ways. Your ways aren't God's ways. God chose Bethlehem. The most insignificant community, town, one can imagine. The smallest of the small. Mary and Joseph. A couple who were impoverished. A young girl. Most likely 16 years of age. This is who's going to be the mother of the Savior of the world. God's ways are not our ways. In fact, this young mom is going to be a virgin. She won't even know a man yet sexually. And yet she's going to conceive the Son of God. Unimaginable. Impossible. Only God can get the credit. 
And yet skeptics and critics look at the Christmas story and they are convinced that the Christmas story is plagiarized. That it's borrowed from mythology. Dan Brown says this in the Da Vinci Code, nothing in Christianity is original, including the Christmas story. Did the writers of the Old Testament, did, did Matthew and Luke borrow from mythology? One who takes a closer look at that can only say no. That these were, these were stories that were contrived beyond the original Christmas story in the third century. But what is really convincing is in um, Acts chapter 17, verses uh, 18 through 20. We're not going to read that this morning, but Paul is in Athens. And uh, Paul is looking and has seen all the the Greek gods that they have uh, created, that they worship. And he begins to talk about uh, the one God, the unknown God, and that that God is the creator of the world. That is the God who who uh, um, sent his son, Jesus Christ. And Paul begins to share the gospel. But uh, someone said this about that passage of scripture. He said, clearly, if Paul were simply rehashing stories of other gods, the Athenian, Athenians would not have referred to his doctrine as new and strange teaching. If dying and rising gods were plentiful in the first century, why, when the Apostle Paul preached Jesus rising from the dead, did the Epicureans and Stoics not remark, ah, just like Horus and Mythos? No. The reason why they didn't say those things, because the gospel story isn't, Borrowed, plagiarized from those other stories. God was writing the story. And so here we see in 1 Samuel 16, Samuel is impressed with Iliad. Samuel was impressed with Saul, his outward appearance, and we know how that turned out. And so here Samuel is in the house of Jesse, and the first son that that comes before Samuel Again, Samuel is impressed by the outside, his, his looks, his stature. Surely, this is God's anointed. God says, Samuel, not, that's not the one. The six other th- sons come by. None of those are God's anointed. Samuel says, do you have any other sons? And even Jesse wasn't convinced that David could have been God's anointed because he's still out tending the sheep. Certainly David isn't qualified. Samuel says, go get him. David comes into the room and God says, this is my anointed. This is the next king of Israel. Church, our ways are not God's ways. We have a tendency to be consumed by the outside, don't we? 
God sees the heart. I was in um, Florida several years ago for an evangelism conference training. And uh, at this conference, we were uh, being dismissed for uh, a lunch break, and we were all to file out this one door. And um, it was pretty congested, but as we were filing out this door, I noticed this uh, this brick, this um, this gray brick that was uh, just propping the door open. And everybody just walked past it. That, the, the, the people didn't give it a second look or second thought. But one person that I thought, man, it's kind of unusual. There was a security guard standing at post outside the exit, just watching people file through. <clears throat> well, that evening of the conference, um, the, the pastor of that church asked uh, someone in the audience, bring up that brick that was uh, used as a doorpost this morning. And it, it weighs a ton. And they bring it up and put it on stage. And he asked, how many people noticed this brick? And several, I, I noticed the, had noticed the brick as that, that, at that lunch break. He said, you know what that is? That's a bar of silver. Pure silver. You know how much that bar of silver is worth? $43,000. And that's why the security guard was standing post outside the exit, making sure no one would take that ugly brick. Folks, there's a lot of people we overlook because we're obsessed by the outside. And we're not very impressed by the outside. Jesse, David's dad, wasn't impressed with David's outside. But God knew David's heart. And God told Samuel, this is Israel's king. Anoint him. What did God see? That we have a tendency of overlooking. God knew that David's heart was dependent upon him. David wasn't impressed or trying to please people and uh, be, he wasn't dependent on others. No, he learned to be dependent upon God. His relationship was God, with God was, was critical. He wasn't focused on impressing others. Susan had an uncle like that growing up. Uncle Raymond. Uncle Raymond was a paraplegic, a severe paraplegic. Uncle Raymond had to point to letters on a board to spell words so that you would know what he was communicating. Now, family members had learned to interpret, learned to 
to know what Uncle Raymond was saying to them. But when I tried to listen to Uncle Raymond talk, I couldn't understand. He had to spell things out for me. Uncle Raymond loved God. Uncle Raymond learned to be totally dependent upon God because there was nothing that he could do with the outside. It was what it was. But my, how he cared for people. Susan struggled with algebra. Uncle Raymond was a brilliant person. You would never know this if you didn't know Uncle Raymond. Uncle Raymond was used to people just walking past him. He knew that he made others feel uncomfortable. But those who knew Uncle Raymond knew that Uncle Raymond had so much to offer. And Uncle Raymond would help Susan with her homework uh, growing up. But Uncle Raymond loved Jesus Christ. And he was totally dependent on God. God knew Uncle Raymond's heart. God knows. God knew David's heart. God knows your heart this morning, friend. Are you dependent on him? Or are you trying to figure it out yourself? You're just going to gut through it. God creates circumstances in our life so we will wait on him. We will choose him. We'll depend on him. The second thing that God saw about David's heart was that David's heart delighted in obeying God. Psalm 48 says, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is written, your law is within my heart. Maybe you're here this morning and you're thinking, didn't David commit a terrible sin? The sin of adultery? Yeah, he did. And that's the beauty of Scripture. Scripture doesn't try to gloss over people's errors. And we see the choice that Adam and Eve made. We see the choice that Noah made after he had believed God's promises, after he had built that boat, after God had done incredible things through Noah's life, Noah made a huge mistake. We see it with Abraham when we're living with the consequences of today because Abraham and Sarah tried to help God out through Sarah's maidservant, Hagar. We see what happened with David's life as well, with Bathsheba. But what we see also of David's life of his, is of his sensitivity towards sin. When David had been called out uh, 
when he realized that God knew. He didn't try to justify it. He didn't try to cover it up. He was a broken man who knew that he had failed and begged God for forgiveness and mercy. You know what? God did. And God made David the greatest king Israel had ever known. That doesn't mean that David didn't suffer consequences, though. We looked at David's life some time ago and the dysfunction that was in David's family following that sin. But deep in David's heart, David delighted in obeying God. And God saw this. God knew it. The third thing that God saw about David's heart, David had a servant's heart. Psalm 89.20 says, I have found David my servant. With my holy oil, I have anointed him. It was never about David. David was there to serve. David wanted even his successor to be, or, or his superior to be successful. When David had the opportunity to kill Saul, David spared Saul's life because David knew that Saul was God's anointed. And David wanted to see Saul succeed. He was there to serve his superior. To have a servant's heart means that no task is too menial. Church, the backbone of Emmanuel Baptist are her servants. And I appreciate every servant in this church because servants, these who serve, who want to see this, this church be successful, to be this church, be a lighthouse in this community, they don't have a consumer mindset. They are here to serve. I want you to know this morning that you are sitting in a room. We are sitting in a building this morning because of the servant generation that went before us. It was about the generation to come. The church on Graff Street, the buildings there on Graff Street, those buildings exist because of servants who were in that church and created a worship facility, created a campus, not just for themselves, but the generation coming behind them. Do you have a servant's heart this morning? We can't afford to have 
a consumer mindset. What's in it for me? It's all about me and my needs. It's about what I can do for him. What can I do for others to help others be successful? This was David's heart. If the church isn't comprised of David's, the church is going to cease to exist. But a church comprised of David's is a church that is unstoppable. Folks, we need to be servants who are not in it for ourselves, but how my life can be a blessing to the generation that comes behind me. That was David's heart. And as we see in in 1 Samuel chapter 16, after 17, after David was anointed king, the shepherd was anointed king, guess what David did? He went back to tending sheep. You would think that he'd start giving orders. You know, he'd start lording it over his brothers and because he's this high and mighty future king. No, he goes back to tending sheep. He keeps doing his job. God saw that. And the last thing that God saw about David's heart is that David had a heart of integrity. He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds. You could always count on David. So what's the message of Advent? One of the many messages of Advent is our ways are not God's ways. God knew David's heart. God knows your heart. May he find a heart in us that is totally dependent on him. So what's the big story of Advent? What's the big story of Christmas? Well, one, God does his greatest work when things are the darkest. Trusting God, it means that we need to wait on Him. And for some of us, we may have to wait a lifetime and we never see God's promises come to fruition in our, in our lifetime. But that doesn't mean that God's promises have failed. We're going to receive our reward. But God is never late. God doesn't make mistakes. And God's timing is perfect. And we continue to believe that in spite of the circumstances. Man, we want God to do it one way. Our way, my way, is not His way. And we keep trusting That's Advent. That's Christmas. And what a glorious hope we have in Christ. Let's pray. God, you are good.
I pray that our lives would reflect how good you really are. God, for the person here this morning who's struggling with their circumstances, God, they don't understand. God, help give them the faith to believe your word, your promises, that they would continue to depend on you. Help us to be like Uncle Raymond. To sacrifice the outside. Sacrifice trying to play this game and impress others. Just do what you want us to do. Be what you want us to be. Help us to be that sacrificial servant. He's not in it for ourselves. But wants others to succeed. To be a blessing to others. Because God, you are good. You are good all the time. May this be the cry of our heart, the song of our heart, the the words of our lips this morning as we worship you in Jesus' name.